And of course, we just sang together Psalm 22, the tune of Kingsfold, that wonderful tune by Ray Fawn Williams. Turn now in your Bibles, if you will, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, as we continue working our way through Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, the first 23 verses. But first, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty God and our Father, we have just sung about the cross. Our Savior, who cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that all who trust in him will never cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Help us, Heavenly Father, we pray, to walk in accordance with that gospel every day, to find all of our justification and sanctification in him, to find all of our salvation in the one who loved us and gave himself for us, and help us to enter in deeply as we look at this scripture today, that we might see once again something of the wonder of the gospel, the greatness of the love that is beyond our comprehension from everlasting to everlasting to have been loved by this great God whom we had offended. This is amazing indeed. It brings us at least within our hearts upon our knees before Thee, thanking Thee for mercy, thanking Thee for grace. And we pray that every believer in Christ will grow in grace as we read and expound the word today. But Father, undoubtedly there are those here who do not know Christ. And we pray that as they hear the gospel call externally, that the Holy Spirit will internalize that call and draw many out of darkness into light, many unto Jesus Christ, many to the foot of the cross. And these things we pray humbly and reverently as children in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Mark's Gospel, chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. 
For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to him, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, are you willing this morning to examine your hearts Are you willing to open your heart and ask that the Holy Spirit examine your heart? In this text are fundamental matters of the fallen human heart. And though the setting seems distant and foreign to us, the heart issues addressed are perennial. Mark chapter 7 returns to Jesus' controversy with the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes that had come from Jerusalem, and Mark places Jesus' penetrating analysis of the Pharisaic heart before three miracles that deal with Gentiles whom they would have considered to have been unclean. There's something new here, and we need Jesus' view of what it means to be clean And though the text is historically and culturally very distant from our own cultural context, you may well find that it is not so distant from your heart after all. So when we come to this text, we begin with the question, this is first, who is God? Who is God? The Pharisees and scribes see Jesus' disciples eating with unwashed hands. They had dirty hands. The issue there is not hygiene. The issue, of course, is that they are considered ceremonially unclean because they have not washed before eating, ritually unclean. These are the extended purity laws from the priests that have come down to the populace, and these practices were intended to place a fence around the law of God to protect the law of God. And they wouldn't bring anything home from the marketplace without washing their hands and washing those things. They wouldn't even sit on their couches to eat without baptizing, literally, their couches. Jesus and his disciples seem to be setting aside their tradition. Now, the text is abused, and I've heard it abused from time to time, when we use it to denounce tradition in general. 
There are all kinds of biblical traditions that were passed down. The Passover, for example, that Jesus himself, uh, as you know, where he established the Lord's Supper, participated in. Tradition is basic to the gospel. The Apostle Paul, when he hands down to Timothy the truth of the gospel, uses the term tradition. He is handing down the tradition. We have our own good traditions, cookies at Christmas. I hope we never get rid of that one. And a baptismal gown in a family that's passed uh, through generations. The Bible is very pro-tradition and not anti-tradition, and Paul passes on the faith and calls it tradition, as I pointed out, which is of great importance. Our major problem today, or one of them, is disdain for those things that have come to us from our fathers, uh, ancient traditions, establishing our own in the name of trouncing tradition and inventing our own with less foundation. No, the problem here is not tradition. It is the tradition of the elders. Notice how it is put here in verse 5. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And in verses 8 and 9, Jesus says to them, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. The problem then is this mountain of oral law that was placed on top of the law of God in order, they said, to help them keep the law, to put a fence around the law. The problem, you see, as we see there in verse 5, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat with defiled hands. The problem in this comparison is a failure to see that they were operating at bottom with two distinctly differing views of who God is. And this is really important because the Pharisees have this abstract idea of God, distant, unrelated to everyday life, though they talked about him a great deal, who bound up people's lives with unbiblical restraints. But here is Jesus, and he is God. He is God in the flesh. He is the incarnate God, the second person of the Trinity, who is proclaiming to them through the repentance of sins, you can know God the Father. God is Father for those who trust in Him, and He wants His children to live in fellowship with Him, and the law is going to take on totally different places in human activity and life with those completely differing views of who God is. For the Pharisees, it took on the idea of merit. We have to obey this law because by obeying this law, We are earning merit with God. We are earning salvation with God. Now, that's come under attack. There are those who don't think that's the case. I don't see how you can read the New Testament without seeing that. And it's also found in other Jewish writings. It's so clear that the Pharisees believed that in obeying the law, they were earning merit with God. And in contrast, for Jesus' disciples, those who trust in Him, Well, he is the one who will go to the cross where the wrath of God is poured out upon them. The law is God's loving provision for my life now because the curse of the law has been removed in Christ's sacrifice for my sins. So Jesus is about to disrupt their whole world. 
their entire worldview, their entire way of thinking. He is shattering the idea that sinners can achieve merit by obedience to what they think is good. He is shattering the idea that human beings have merit before God. With it, he shatters their view of God. And this is all important because the doctrine of God, who God is, who he has revealed himself to be, is the starting place for all things, for how you see God himself, how you see man, how you see sin, how you see grace, how you see end times, how you see everything. All serious theological error is traceable to a false doctrine of God. And there are ethical implications, heart implications, daily living implications that flow from a true or a false view of who God is. So if they had really dwelt on God's holiness, had they really dwelt on God's moral perfection, had they, had they been concerned with the fact that he is the, the transcendent holy God, then they would have thought differently about his word and about their hearts and about their eternal needs. They should have been deeply disturbed in their hearts by this internal breach of God's law, and they should have cried out, woe is me, I am undone, I'm lost. But they had so designed their view of God's law, not God's view of his law, but their view of his law, that they protect themselves against conviction of sin. If we do not know ourselves to be lawbreakers, if we do not understand that sin is the transgression of the law of God or any want of conformity unto it, then we will never see our need of Christ. I wonder if that's someone here brought up. You're very moral. You have thought that you were earning merit with God, but you never understand the holy perfection of God and His law that reveals His character. Perhaps now you will begin to see by the grace of God. You cannot earn merit with God. You cannot work your way into God's good graces. You cannot work your way to heaven. If you're saved, it is because God does it. So, it is this false view of God that leads to the wall of protection in Phariseeism. So that's second, the wall of protection, the wall of protection, and Jesus' penetrating response to them, and he begins by pointing out their hypocrisy. They ask him this question about the tradition of the elders and washing hands, and surely they must have been surprised when in verse 6 he said, And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people who thought they were being faithful and walking according to God's law, you hypocrites, he says, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Outwardly, they were pious. Inwardly, they were godless. They had no place for God, not the God who is, the God who is holy. It was just veneer. So this was a shock. This was an offense to them, to a people always talking about God, always talking about the law of God. But all of their talk about the law of God was man-centered ultimately and not God-centered. Their talk was devoid of grace, and they were hypocrites. 
Hendrickson defines a hypocrite this way. A hypocrite is a fraud, a deceiver, a phony, a snake in the grass, wolf in sheep's clothing. He pretends to be what he is not. Fine definition. So Jesus says to them, all right, you want to talk about God's word. What does the Bible say? And so in verses 6 and 7, he quotes Isaiah 29, 13 and Exodus 20, verse 12, and he shows them, you're playing games, you're show not substance, outwardly you may look impeccable, inwardly you're dead. And in Matthew chapter 13, the Lord Jesus says to them, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean. So he says to the Pharisees these, and the scribes, these are the religious leaders of the day, he says, you have unclean hearts. With your lips you honor God, but your hearts are far from God. They, you're pretending to teach the doctrines of God, but instead you're really just teaching the doctrines and rules of man about God's Word and His law. So he says, you're a hypocrite. Let's look at the Bible. And then he says, your tradition is against Scripture. So in verse 9, and he said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your own tradition. So the fence that they put around the law of God trounced the law of God. They in reality disobeyed God's law, all the while claiming to honor the law of God. And so twisted is the fallen human heart, mine and yours, the Pharisees and scribes. So twisted is the fallen human heart, so dark is it, that we can fall into sheer externalism applied to everything. And this attitude continued after the ministry of Jesus in the earthly ministry of Jesus in Judaism. There are 12 treatises of the Mishnah that deal with purification rites, washing of hands and so forth. Um, the rabbis, I just read, found 49 reasons for pronouncing an animal either clean or unclean. That's how they had to live. Uh, an egg laid on the Sabbath could be eaten as long as you intended to kill the hen. Well, this was not a conscientious desire to obey God's word. This was man-centered law. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. One of the old New Testament scholars, Alfred Plummer, made this wonderful statement. Rigid scrupulosity about things of little moment may be accompanied with utterly unscrupulous conduct in matters that are vital. So you're concerned with all of these little details, ideas that you have about God's law to protect the law, but when it comes to really big issues, mercy and justice, knowing and loving God and your fellow man, those things, about those things, you can be unmerciful and scrupulous. Oh, how necessary it is, this principle that the Word of God is our only infallible rule of faith and practice. They are not following the Bible. They are not submitting to the authority of God's Word. And so, 
their heart is a fortress against God. Just a, a fortress. There's someone I'm about to quote whose theology is really messed up, but he really understood what Jesus and what Paul says about this matter. Here's a, here's a quote from him. Uh, Man has retreated behind his deeds and achievements as well as behind his guilt. Did you hear that? He's saying Jesus and Paul are saying man has retreated behind his deeds and achievements as well as behind his guilt. God is concealed behind the law and man behind his achievements and works. Law and performance are two sides of the protecting wall behind which man takes up his own position and asserts himself before God. Now, this protective wall, this new law that we come up with can be the law of a street gang. It can be the law of a philosopher. It can be the antinomian that sets aside God's law but always establishes his own standard. It all has the same goal. It's avoidance of God, evade God, keep my real need and the one who can answer that need at a safe distance. Don't keep a heart like that. Repent of a heart like that. Trust in Christ and be done with a heart like that, people of God. So where does it lead? This Pharisaic approach to life, this this thinking you have to protect the law, and then you have this wall that protects you from the from the Word of God, where does it lead? Well, this Pharisaic approach to life can very well lead to an unmerciful heart. And that's the third thing, the unmerciful heart, an unmerciful heart. And we see it here in verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me as Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed him and many such things you do. So Jesus is making a concrete application. He gives a concrete example. Let's go to the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother. And this word Corbin that he uses, this technical priestly term that means an offering that is dedicated to God. So when an offering was Corbin, it was no longer available for certain uses, for ordinary use. So a man might dedicate his material wealth to God and later his parents, whom he should have loved and cared for in their old age. Uh, Maybe they had physician's bills, or maybe they needed a comfortable place to live, or maybe they lived uh, in, a, in, in a place where, where they needed nursing care, as we would say today. They have great needs that this man's wealth can meet, but he's dedicated his wealth to God, you see, Corbin. So the scribes would tell him, if you, if you went to the scribes, you've, you've dedicated it to God, you just have to abide by it. No matter your parents' needs, it's dedicated to God. You may not use it to help them. So the scribes told people how they could avoid caring for elderly parents and look godly in the process. Now, what better use for something dedicated to God, money dedicated to God, than helping your needy parents 
and honoring the fifth commandment. So the issue here is that this system seemed to make the law keepable, but actually totally misses God, misses human hearts, misses human needs, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And it was religious, but it was godless. It invalidates the law of God. Verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. They did that because they never understood the depravity of their hearts. Oh, they talked about sin, but they never understood the depravity of their hearts. They did not understand their bondage to sin, their blindness of heart, their subjugation to Satan, their enmity to God, the enormity of their sin, that they could do nothing in the flesh to please God. In short, they had no understanding that they needed a Redeemer. And they were most religious in their rebellion. Does anyone here see his heart for the first time like this? Exposed by the true preaching of the law of God, the holiness of God? Maybe for the first time you're beginning to see it and to see your need and hopefully by the grace of God see the Redeemer that is being preached this morning. So you can become totally unmerciful I dedicated this money to God long ago, so I'm sorry, mom, dad, you're in this mess. Nothing I can do about it. Now, you young people, I'm going to say say some things to you. I really love you, and I want you to benefit from my errors, my mistakes. I want you to benefit primarily from the Word of God. That's first, always, is it not? If we have hearts like this, we can become unmerciful. Now, I'm not thinking of any incident or anything like that. That's not it. I just know how it can be. You've been brought up in church. You've been brought up in Sunday school. Many of you in Christian schools, Christian homes. And that that can be a place of great danger if you do not understand the gospel. Because you can set up your own standard and you can become unmerciful to others. We can go to youth group and rather than understand that the law and the gospel are great levelers showing that we have the same need, we have the same heart's needs, we need the same Savior, we can inwardly disdain people who perhaps have not had our advantages. The church is composed of all sorts of people, and we are called to love and to live with whomever God calls into his kingdom, and we are called to grow together. Now, don't misunderstand me. Grace does make a difference between ourselves and the world. That's not my point. Grace does make a difference between the saved and the lost. But how we view everything and our ethics will be different from the world's. I'm talking about a warm, welcoming heart to sinners who have the same need in the heart that you have and need the same Savior that you need. Now, I know this can happen this unmerciful attitude. I've known it in my own experience. I've seen it happen. And this always stands out to me as an example. I remember a young man named Earl. And I invited him to our youth group in the church where I grew up. And he didn't have many of the same advantages. None of us were in well-off homes or anything like that. But 
we had everything we needed. Earl didn't. And I remember when the boys just picked on him and troubled him and mistreated him. And there they were in, in the Sunday school class, hearing the word and come here, Earl, they would say, and they put pepper on the page. Look at this. And then they blew it in his eyes. And the boy ran home crying, just where he should have been received and heard the gospel, and he ran home crying. Do you know who accepted Earl? I will tell you who accepted Earl. The Jehovah's Witnesses accepted Earl. A cult that denies the Trinity, that denies the deity of Christ, that denies the gospel of grace, that has a false view of communion, but they accepted Earl, and Earl accepted them. Do you see, a pharisaical heart can lead to an unmerciful heart, and we can be cruel in nicer, even more pious ways than that. Remember, There's a Pharisee in every heart. And you know what I want for you young people, and I want for all of us, and I want for myself. I want you young people to have an overpowering, overwhelming understanding and sense of the love of God in Christ. That you're saved by mercy, and therefore you love others as well. And when Jesus came to us, he did not come to the lovely, but to the rebellious, as the passage was read right before we we began our worship service today, that he, he came to the needy sinner, and he's the friend of sinners, as we often sing, and when we know that, then we will also be the friend of sinners. So if someone comes to your youth group, your gathering, your, 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 to be with your friends, you don't exclude them, receive them, accept them, bring them in. If they're offended, let them be offended by truth, but not because they have not been warmly welcomed, not because we don't keep in mind my desire is for this person to know Christ as I know Christ. So... The Pharisees never had to ask the question that we read in Psalm 139. Oh, they recited it, they heard it, but did they ask it deep down? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God. In what ways might you be inventing your own standard Avoiding God, evading his deep searching of your heart. So defiled hearts need grace, which leads us to the fourth thing. If that's true, what is defilement? Now, let's go to verse 15. When the Lord Jesus says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what? defiled him. It's a little parable that Jesus taught. And the point here that he unpacks is that the source of defilement is not food. It's, it's the human heart. This radical evil that has taken possession of every human heart due to the fall of man in paradise. And Jesus does not set aside 
the need for purity, he intensifies and sharpens the need for purity in order to show us that we can't produce it, that we need God's grace. You remember how Machen put it? I've quoted it so many times from the pulpit, but just in essence what Machen said, the problem with the Pharisees is not that they had high, too high a view of the law, which is what most people think. They had too low a view of the law because they believed it to be keepable and that they would be accepted by God through their efforts. J.M. Stifler, 19th century Baptist seminary professor, said, it cannot be said too often that a false theology finds its source in inadequate views of depravity. So what does Jesus do? Well, here's what he does. Look again at verse 18 and following. He said to them, to his disciples, they're asking about it. Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. By the way, there's the authority of Jesus. He had the authority to declare all foods clean. But back to verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So what does Jesus do? He points to original sin, the corruption of our nature due to our fall in Adam, And he opens the heart. He speaks of evil schemes and evil designs, uh, sexual sins, which today could be pornography or premarital or extramarital sins, off-color joking. Uh, He um, points to theft, not giving an honest day's work uh, for, for, um, for for the pay, or socialism and government, which is legalized plunder. It's theft. Murders, adulteries, which means sexual intercourse with another that's not your spouse. Covetings. Remember, Herod coveted his neighbor's wife in a prior chapter. Malicious acts that include deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, blasphemy, defamation of character, arrogance, folly, All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Every human heart is characterized by these things, every one of us. The moral person who says, not me, oh yes, you just don't know yourself. It characterizes every human heart. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on Romans chapter 5, says, the sinner is an abomination, He is a monstrosity in God's universe. He is altogether hateful and vile. How can he say that? Because we were created in God's image. We were created to walk with God in fellowship. We have rebelled against the living and true God. He can say this because it's God's point of view. That's how God sees the sin of our hearts. And that's why Jesus said, you must be born again. You need a new nature. But in this text, the crux of the matter is the relationship between law and grace, which is the fifth and final thing that I want to point out to you, the relationship between law and grace. 
So we see the law of God and grace correctly related only if we see that the law in its perfection shows me my sin, my depravity of heart in light of God's holiness, and that means that I need atonement. I need the cross. I must have a sinless substitute, one who could bear my guilt and remove God's wrath, bringing justification, declaring me righteous before the throne of God, legally declaring me right with God. Christ is our only hope in view of the spiritual and holy and good perfection of the law of God. So we need, each of us needs, a sinless substitute in order to be saved. And that is where the Lord Jesus is leading us in his preaching in Mark. That's where Mark is leading us to the cross and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus took the penalty so that sinners under the condemnation of the law might have life, and through his shed blood alone can be saved from sin. So Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Alexander White was a Presbyterian minister in the 19th century, and he was going to visit an elder that was dying in his congregation. And when he went there, I suppose the elder must have been sleeping, or perhaps he was unconscious. In any case, Pastor White noticed that there was a book in his hand that was open to a certain page. And so he looked at the book, and it wasn't the Bible, but it was the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was opened to chapter 11 to the section on justification, and his fingers were pointing to this paragraph. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but by Christ, for Christ's sake alone. Nor by, impu- nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. So this elder had his confession of faith. And what was his hope as he was about to go into eternity? That he was justified by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone in whom he had put his trust. Have you? Now I'm going to make the gospel as clear as I possibly can. If it's not clear to you, it's not because I have not been clear. It's because the heart does not yet see it. We sinners justly deserve God's displeasure. We cannot work our way into God's good graces. We cannot save ourselves. There is nothing that you can do, no performance, no work that can earn merit with God. Salvation is by grace, through faith, Alone in Christ, and I stress alone, grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone in Christ. 
So, those wonderful lines of Horatius Bonner, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. I stake my whole eternity, not on a life that I live or a death that I die, but on the life that Jesus lived and the death that he died. Have you staked your whole eternity on Christ? No hope without Christ. Now let me give you an example of how God uses the law to lead people to the Savior. Ian Murray has written a very fine essay on the ministry of Scottish worthy um, Horatius Boner. And in that essay, he tells this. There's this woman who grew up in the town where he's ministering at this time. It's a town in Scotland, Kelso. And she's visiting a friend. This young woman had spent her infancy in Kelso and after living in France, had returned to visit a friend in June 1841. Well-educated, widely traveled, and thoroughly worldly. She may have known her friend to have been converted under Bonner's ministry before she made this visit and seems to have been determined to remain untouched by her religion. Nonetheless, she consented to attend the evening service on the first Sunday after her arrival. Now, what was Bonner preaching? Was he preaching, here's your best life now? Was Bonner preaching, well, you know, here's, here's, here's just all these good things for your everyday, everyday living. I'm, I'm, Bonner was preaching the law. Bonner was preaching the gospel. Bonner was preaching on the misery of man in sin. And the visitor's verdict on that sermon was, too awful for her, she would not come back. But when individuals become angry under preaching, it can be a good sign. And it was so in this case. There was something hollow about her protest. Don't suppose I care anything for that man's words. I'm determined not to mind him. Soon she met the man she intended to ignore. And a few weeks later, she went back to the world no more. But after a little delay, straight forward to the cross, there to deposit all her sins and fears. This woman became a great child of God serving the church there. Bonner actually wrote a biography of her after her death. Now, that's what it means to trust in Christ. I am a sinner. I come to see myself in view of God's perfections. To be hopeless and undone and condemned. Have you seen that? Then go to Him. Go to Christ alone. Go straight to the cross and deposit your sins and your fears there. Right at the foot of the cross. And trust in Christ who shed His blood sufficient for any sinner who may be here today. Any sinner anywhere. Sufficient to save to the uttermost, all who come to God by Him. Go straight to the cross. Go to Him. Come without delay. Amen. Amen.